Hey there, and welcome to the Foothills Deeper Pod, a podcast for all of us looking to bring more love and more courage into our daily lives. I'm Reverend Elaine, one of your hosts, and I'm so glad to be here with you today. And I'm so glad to be here with Reverend Gretchen. Hi, Gretchen. Hello. I'm so glad to be with you. I think we haven't been on the podcast together yet. No, this is definitely a first. Yay. <laughs> Good to be with you. So, Last Sunday, you offered an amazing sermon, and it started off talking about your attendance at the Orange Conference. So I thought I'd start our conversation digging in there. Can you tell us what is Orange and why did you go? I talk about this a little bit in the in the sermon, but like it's basically a very large annual gathering of people who do family ministry and who have an investment in uh, faith formation for the next generation. That's a like a generic understanding of it. It's just that it's also grounded in a strategy called um, Think Orange and uh, that they actually spend, the team spends all year traveling the country, sharing the same strategy you have, um, there's like tons of materials and books and tools that, that they all produce that's from this strategy. So um, as um, Eleanor Van Dusen, our director of family ministry says, it's sort of like you kind of like could drink the Kool-Aid of orange because it's, it's, it's a whole system. And once you're in, you, you're kind of like get really deep in because it's a whole wraparound thing. But this in particular is a conference of about 6,000 people, mostly Southern evangelical Christians who are invested in family ministry. And why did I go? Well, um, a couple years ago in 2018, um, Eleanor and Sean both went and they had got, you know, we don't, we had been aware of Orange from other religious educators and from articles. And um, they were just, we'd been looking for different strategies for how to do religious education differently um, in the shifting culture. And they both just decided to take a leap and see what it was all about. And um, they had a really incredible experience and they came back saying, you should go, we should, we should all go. It was really wonderful. And I went in 2019, right before my sabbatical and I had a, I went with Sean and we had a really great time. Um, and I learned, I, I felt like it was just incredibly mind expanding. It was inspiring. It was energizing. And also a little problematic. I wrote a whole blog post about it, about the, what I found to be, you know, the heartbreak of finding something so wonderful and also knowing the problematic theology at the heart of it, in particular around queer identity, gay identity. I just, I thought is a particular heartbreak of that space. And this year I felt like they really made some progress in that realm. Um, could be I was reading into it, but um, I felt more, I felt like they were really trying some brave things. Um, so, so anyway, that's what led me there. And I had, it was as good, if not better than I remembered. And I'm so glad I went. And I, I really do think we, that we should send people there every year. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what were some of the brave things you noticed? Um, well, they've all, a couple of things that are like surprising. First of all, I think we all have our stereotypes about people we perceive of as politically or culturally opposite of us or on an opposing side in one way or another. And, um, including for Unitarian Universalists and for queer folks, our stereotypes of who evangelical Christians are and what topics and what their take is going to be on a given topic. And they have been and continue to be e extremely inspiring around racial justice. And I think they even took a step forward on that front this year. So let me just explain the, the format. There's, there's the main stage, which is the arena. That anchors throughout the conference a shared experience. The main stage is my favorite part. It's not, that's not true for everybody. A lot of people love their breakouts because of the very specific tools. But on the main stage, they do these, they do big talks, like individual speakers that all come out of theme. Each year they pick a theme. 
Um, and then interspersed with that is what I can't think they call it table talks. Mm -hmm. So with table talks, a group of people, usually the founder, um, which is Reggie Joyner, often um, uh, Kristen Ivey, who's the current like CEO. And then they invite like three or four or five others to just sit and talk with them. And, you know, again, it's an arena. So it's like not what you would think would happen in a, that size venue, but they speak. And I would say it's really grounded in Reggie Joyner, who is extremely vulnerable and off, like he comes across as very authentic. Mm-hmm. And often with the racial justice stuff, he will invite Black racial justice activists to come and speak with him about the way their work connects with their faith. And in particular, what they're seeing emerging with young people. And that he will talk about his own epiphanies and his own struggles. And I think especially in this year where we're very, like, you know, polarized around racial justice and um, and how we think we think um, evangelical Christians approach Black Lives Matter, for example, or um, or critical race theory or any of that, you know, we kind of go into those talking points almost immediately in our head. It was like, he just just disarms all of that conversation and turns it into an extremely human conversation around a table. And it's so, it's so beautiful. So that I would say, like, I just, I thought, and they, then from the speakers, they had lots of black speakers. They really, and they just, they, they, they were very disarming over and over and over from a willingness to stand in front of, again, thousands of evangelical Southern Christians and go right towards racial justice. Mm-hmm. And yet to do it in a way that's out of a sense of insider language. And this, I think it's brilliant. So, and then, okay, they also, they're very, because they are filled with youth group leaders, um, leaders of middle schoolers and high schoolers. They are very aware that a lot of our middle schoolers and high schoolers are engaging with gender in a very different way. And so they, again, one of those table talks, they would just, you know, sit down and talk about with other, with youth group leaders, like, what are they finding? And, and what they will say is like, you, like, you think you're stuck on the, I think one of my favorite lines, you think we're stuck on like homosexuality and whether that's a thing we should be worried about and how do we resist it? And, 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 and you talk to your youth and they like, they don't, they, they're completely in a different frame of mind. They have, a, they have a different concept of gender than we even know how to keep up with. And so if we're going to be in a conversation with them, we have to understand what is that framework of gender. And we need to learn from them about how to have that conversation about gender that they're otherwise not like we're in a different conversation. It just like, I think, again, room, the room they're in, the, the way they're able to just speak quite vulnerably about their own challenges and to wrestle with it in public, I think is, is just in, incredibly brave. So I feel inspired about, I've, like I said in the sermon, I'm hope, makes me feel hopeful mm-hmm. that change and nuance and complexity is happening even in spaces that I might think of as flattened or politicized. And a re- reductionist, I I think, and and it makes me it teaches me about how to have vulnerable, brave conversations that are also expansive in our own settings. That's really powerful. I wonder about the differences between gatherings of Unitarian Universalists and where we're comfortable and where we lean in, and this gathering. Not to say that any one group of people is better than another or something or to compare in a judgmental way. But I'm curious, what do you notice, even in terms of sensory things, like um, what ways of being together are emphasized at Orange or what do you see or hear or feel? And what does that bring up for you when you think about how we gather as Unitarian Universalists? Oh, so many things, Elaine. So um, I mean, it is a very different cultural experience uh, than Unitarian Universalist gatherings. And because I'm um, prepping for general UUA General Assembly, I'm really like, it was hard not to be in a constant comparison of our national gathering and this large gathering. 
So first of all, it's young. And so just that's a major significant sensory difference. Like, um, so I'm 46 and I think I was, you know, definitely among the older folks mm-hmm. there. And at General Assembly, like I'm among the younger folks there. Um, so there's that, like you notice that right away. <laughs> um, it's very racially diverse. Um, so in particular, there's a lot of black folks there and a lot of and a lot of white folks. So I would say racially diverse in terms of black, white. Um there was there is um well, first of all, it's like massive amounts of people feeling really excited about about being there, about buying things. They said definitely send teams of people from their churches. So you can tell like whole teams of 10 or 12 are there. Some of that is possible because the event itself is really inexpensive. Mm-hmm. It's like, I think it was like 250 bucks and general assembly is like, this year is like 550. Um, it's also a scale that's very reasonable, like three days. Um, so I just, I really value those kind of accessibility. And some of that's possible because it's 6,000 people, right? right? So you can scale it. But it's, it is a sensory overload experience in a lot of ways. Um, I was talking to some folks about it this week and, you know, acknowledging that if you had serious COVID anxiety, this would not be the place for you to go. I was one amongst a very small minority that wore a mask in that large stadium and we were singing and we were dancing and, you know, there was definitely a real, uh, just disregard for any, the fact that there still is a pandemic happening. So that's just part of the reality. Um, now let me go back to the singing, dancing. So they spare no expense when it comes to a pr- the production on the main stage. The resources that they're willing to put forward around amazing production is just mind-boggling, and it it just reminds you like what's possible if you're willing to put the kind of financial resources behind something, you know, to make it amazing. And um, they pulled in they. They do, they start with like a major mix of kind of pop songs. Um, like the first song was the opening night was, um, I want to dance with somebody from Whitney Houston and, you know, which is an older song. So it's kind of like, like it speaks to the Gen X in the room. And, um, that is like, I think it's, I don't know. It's like some of those moments I feel like when I was younger where people would be like, let's play the Beatles. It'll bring over the old folks. So, I, but it also was like, you know, after the years of not being together, it's also, it, it like immediately taps into that place where you do like, oh, we want to dance together. Actually, the impulse right now should be to dance together. <laughs> and like, that's not, I just cannot imagine that's what's going to happen at the opening night of GA. Um, they also brought in like a full drum line, uh, like a marching band drum line at some point. Everybody's just like, like, it just. It has that that energy states the floodlights are like, you know, a giant production, but it it's not without a message throughout the whole thing. So they start there, then they go to like individual talks that are usually they are um they they each have a theme this year, like I said, that this year the theme was be human. And so every talk had a line that was about what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And then you just come back with like my favorite one was humans are complicated. And it was a, just a guy talking about like all the places where you rub it up to something that it's hard to explain why we do things a certain way we do or why we get stuck. And then he'd say, because humans are complicated Mm -hmm. and it just, it was funny. And it's, um, and, and so I still, I think about it a lot. Like I have that line, even such a simple line. It's not like you know, anything new that he's exactly saying. So just like, and then, and then they come back, sing some more and you're kind of like, and then they end the whole thing with a big, what they call worship, which um, as my friend, um, the minister in Atlanta, Terrence Strauss said, sitting next to me, we're, we're at the end. We've done this whole amazing event with music and talks and, you know, inspiration and, and oh, power. And then at the end they go, okay, it's time for worship. And Terrence's like, wait, worship's starting now? 
Like it just like felt like that was worship. But to them, what they mean is like a very particular sort of music style where they can raise their arms in the air and, you know, worship, literally express their uh, adoration and worship of God and Jesus. So, I mean, that is a very different cultural experience than what we have. I have one more thing to say. I know I'm talking a lot, but this is my, I think it's so interesting. And I do feel like partially like anthropological in this yeah. way, but, um, which is on the second night after you've done your breakouts all day. So you've been sitting in classrooms all day, learning lots of stuff. They always hold what's called seriously night and seriously night is their version of Saturday night live. Um, where it's like a whole evening of comedy and they devote like the whole night is comedy. And a lot of it is um, they even have like a news, a fake news show, like, like Saturday Night Live does, except for it, all of it is like spoofing Christian stereotypes, like, or practices. Like they, they, they really dig at themselves and like, they just find it so funny. <laughs> um, and I, and also, like, the stand-up is great. Um, Andy Stanley, who's the head of North Point Church, senior pastor, he's, like, really famous, well-known, especially to these folks in this room. Um, his kid, who's now an adult, named Andrew Stanley, it turns he grew up to be a, a comic. And so he was my favorite of the whole night because he just, um, first of all, it's sort of, um, you know, so insider in that. We all know, oh, his dad and how serious and amazing he is. And then he's there sort of talking about, um, you know, some telling family secrets in a certain way. And it was so, I mean, I would pay to just see that comp. He was amazing. So just like that, that, they take a whole night and they just do comedy. Like that is like, to me, unheard of, but it's recognizing you spent the whole day in workshops. And so you don't, you need something that's like a release, especially if you have young adults in the room or youth in the room. Um, it's just a whole different way of thinking about how do you keep people engaged over the course of, it's really like two and a half days. Um, so, okay, I've, I've probably talked enough, but that's, those are some of the things that I find fascinating and mind expanding that is different than Unitarian Universalist gatherings. I'm so glad you mentioned the humor. And I'm curious, like I totally get how functionally that that's a release after so much time taking in so much information. And I'm also curious on a spiritual level, what do you what is going on in that space um, where we have evangelical Christians kind of satirizing or joking about their own culture and experience? Like What's yeah, and you know, on there. okay, so one little just note, Unitarians, we do have jokes about ourselves. Oh, yeah. But I find them very not funny. And in that often they're like a way of demeaning who we are and like making, pointing out that we mean nothing or that we do not, we stand for nothing or that we take a million years to do nothing. It just, like, I just find them actually really sad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that was, that's not my, how I experienced this. So what I find is that first of all, it's, um, it's like, a it's actually culturally binding. It, it, it's a way to say like this thing that is our practice, it's kind of funny, but we actually, re it really means something to us. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think they're also recognizing the ways that their funny practices are different than the cult, wider culture. And so they run into, they like make note of the ways that, like the thing that's funny about it is that they're not like the culture. Mm -hmm. They're, and, you know, they make a lot of like purity jokes, a lot of like, um, Oh my gosh, let me tell you what the one, Andy Stanley, my favorite one from Andrew Stanley. He talks about how his dad, when he was growing up, used to make him like take the DVDs of movies that he, he thought were good movies for his kids to see, but they maybe had one scene in it that it was a sex scene. And so he'd download onto his computer the, the DVD, the movie, and then cut and edit a new version, which that he'd upload to his iPad or whatever. And he's like, you know, just think my dad cared about me that much. 
to, you know, spend four days trying to make sure I had a movie. We, you know, we're all kind of laughing about like, this is funny that he did this. And it's interesting. And then he said, but then as an adult, I've grown up to realize that on his computer, there must be a file is <laughs> filled with just those scenes. <laughs> and, you know, like, it's such a, like, like you, I mean, who knows if he did that or not. But it's such a funny thing to imagine Andy Stanley, who we kind of all know, all having this scene. And, you know, it wasn't it's 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 like, again, it's like an inside joke, but not like he wasn't demeaning. I actually was recognizing the shortcomings of like that, that. Um, like they're very human in the way they're addressing that in that. Like I had lost like one of the people got up and talked about um, how much that he knew that people in the room had turned to white claw over the course of the um over the pandemic uh, turned to what you know white claw the drink the canned alcohol alcohol got it um a particular sort that's probably very quite extra popular in the evangelical christian set got it um, so like he was joking about it and it was funny very funny and it also was an acknowledgement of their of a humanity of that this thing that they know, they all agree is wrong. They also know they all did it hmm. and they struggle with it. But instead of turning it into like shame, it was actually really it's it's just humanizing. So I like what is the parallel for us of that? I mm-hmm. I'm not sure. And I like I we. I don't know how we would have the looseness and also the brave. I think it's so brave to be in this very mix. There's 70 denominations in the room. That's a great diversity of theological and cultural orientation. And to just get up and make some, you know, jokes about our shared humanity without it potentially being um, turned against you. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. I, I thought it was it, it's strengthening. It's um, humanizing. And I don't know, weirdly identity in, enforcing, actually. It makes me curious about whether having a communal, some kind of communal practice of confession or of constantly acknowledging our shadow side, our sinful side, the part of ourselves um, that we struggle with the most that is not aligned with our values. If having some kind of shared practice of that <clears throat> makes it easier to kind of just show our humanity and our vulnerability in these really public ways. Yeah. 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 And also like confession, but in this case, it was like more like a public acknowledgement. And so it wasn't like confession in the way that I think we tend to think of that word, Mm -hmm. which is like, I've been feeling this shadow truth about myself. Let me be healed of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it's more like, I mean, come on, we all know that that's true. And um, we're doing our best here. Yeah. Just being real. Yeah. And so like to treat it with humor, to treat confession as humor Mm-hmm. is a very different thing than how we tend to think of like I was thinking of all the times last the last GA which was all online how many times I felt like I went to a something where we were talking about embracing our grief mm-hmm. I mean this whole the whole the whole time there were moments where they deeply acknowledged grief but they just never came at it from the perspective of like the like it was more integrated and yeah like more Humor, sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's beautiful. Well, let's take some time now and listen to your sermon, Gretchen. All right. My first real impression of the Orange Conference came by text message. It was from Eleanor Van Dusen, our director of family ministry, and it was a photo of her and Reverend Sean in a giant arena with amazing stage lights when thousands of people and her underneath it, it, her text said, we are practicing our praise hands. And there they were with their hands in the air, looking kind of uncomfortable, 
kind of confused and also kind of happy. The Orange Conference is an annual gathering started originally by the folks who do family and children's ministry at North Point Church, which is an evangelical mega, mega church, a Christian church in Atlanta. Orange, it's called Orange because it's as its founder, Reggie Joyner says, Orange is what um, red representing the warmth of the heart of the family and yellow representing the light of the church can do when they combine efforts. Orange is our strategically combined influence on the spiritual direction of the next generation. Now, while Sean and Eleanor certainly had a number of moments where they experienced both horror and cringe, not just at the praise hands, but also at, a, at moments of sincerely problematic theology. Ultimately, they both left Orange that year feeling clear that we, the Foothills Unitarian Church, should always send at least one and hopefully a whole team of both staff and lay leaders to the Orange Conference every year. Which is what led me last week to Atlanta and my second time at the Orange Conference. Except this time, Elle and Sean were both either already on or about to be on sabbatical, so it was just me. Although I did get to hang out with the entire staff, team, and a bunch of lay leaders from the UU Church in Atlanta, all of whom were, like me, entirely persuaded by the brilliance of this evangelical Christian movement. Orange is not is is one of those experiences that sincerely shifts your imagination and your thinking if you're open to it not in a christian conversion sort of way don't worry although i can imagine that there are at least a few folks who see you use on the registration and wonder if this will be the the chance for us to finally be saved which is fine one of the reasons I have come to love Orange is because I sort of think the same thing about all those traditional Christians in the room, like maybe there's hope for them yet. What I mean, though, is that the folks at Orange approach things so radically differently than many of us as Unitarian Universalists often do. So that being around them expands your sense or my sense of what's even possible. Through their simple and very accessible resources based on age and stage, their integration of music and fun and humor into everything, and most especially in their clear sense of just how important it is that we direct our resources, attention, and relationships towards our children and youth. They are obsessed about finding ways to pass on faith to the next generation, not only because they want to make sure that their kids are saved for the next life, that is often also true, but also because they believe with all their hearts that their kids and their families need the church in their lives right now. Now, as I talk about all of this, I wonder if any of you are squirming just a little bit or even feeling a little bit triggered. A lot of us come from other religious traditions that had this sort of fervor of passing on the faith. After all, in a lot of cases, that fervor translated actually into trauma and spiritual abuse. That is an indoctrination of shame and life-denying theologies that were delivered with an absolute authority of holy truth, capital T. That is an unwillingness to abide with questions or doubt or curiosity or science. That is patriarchy and homophobia and white supremacy and capitalism and consumerism and the pillaging of the earth and of indigenous peoples. This is the inheritance that many of us received as children in the form of passing on faith. And many of us are still recovering from it. And actually our society as a whole is still being shaped by this inheritance as the Supreme Court leaked decision makes very plain. These sorts of experiences are why religious liberals tend to have, we tend to have a more ambivalent understanding of that task of passing on faith to our children 
even though many of us do find foothills first because we hope that our children will be given tools and resources that we aren't sure how to give them ourselves. And it's not that we don't want our children to be religiously literate or to grow spiritually in ways that connect to their innate curiosity. It's just more that it gets a little confusing when we start to talk about this idea of passing on our faith, let alone getting obsessed about it. This ambivalence means that often we, we end up giving our kids a lot of information about other people's religion, including what we find problematic about it, but we stay pretty quiet about our own faith and our own spiritual lives. A lot of times we just aren't sure what to say or we really aren't, we haven't done our own work. And of course, we can't pass on a spiritual life to our kids if we ourselves don't have one. Even more, even more importantly, our ambivalence about passing on faith means that we don't make relationships, real relationships across generations, a priority when it comes to church. Families with kids at home end up hanging out with other families with kids at home, and then older adults socialize with other adult, older adults. Kid, adults without kids circle around trying to find other adults without kids, and the teenagers avoid us all. Now, all of this doesn't mean that our kids and all of us are not always still being shaped in faith. We still inherit covenant, as Rebecca Parker says. Their families and their friends and the culture around them and everything around our kids are shaping them all the time. It's just that what they miss is that chance then after they've inherited this covenant, they, they miss that chance to get to create covenant after that. They miss learning how to make those intentional and constructive choices that are based in a deeper sense of belonging and significance and even transcendence. Now, this was not the experience that I had growing up. Like a lot of you, I was raised Catholic, which means that it, my childhood was filled with people that wanted to pass on the faith. There was Marcy, my confirmation sponsor, who seemed to have no, no limit to hearing all of my questions. There was Damaris and Denise who played guitar with me in the church choir. Father Mike, who gave the best kids sermons. And Father Allen, who invited me to give the homily at my high school baccalaureate. There were teachers and coaches and my friends' parents. I was formed in faith, not by one person, but by a whole community, a constellation of people that included my family, but what is importantly, not just my family, adults who knew my name and my interests and who would miss me if I wasn't there. My parents, despite what they thought at the time, were mostly important, not because of what they directly taught us but because they put us in the context of that community and then didn't give up on it, no matter what. No matter how often they got annoyed at the priest or how messy small town church community became, they took us to mass every Sunday. They paid more than they could afford to keep us in Catholic school. They signed the whole family up as ushers all the time and as volunteers at our church's clothing exchange. I put this note here in this way, especially for the parents who are here today. Because trying to pass on our faith and our values to our kids is often an exercise of frustration or guilt or disappointment or all of the above especially when you have kids that are decidedly less compliant than I was as a kid, which is, let's be honest, basically all kids. And especially in this moment where just this week, the New York Times is reporting that more than half of all parents are experiencing a degree of burnout, parental burnout. So it's good to remember that in a lot of ways, parents do not have to pass on or teach that much at all. Instead, like a lot of parenting, it mostly comes down to being a consistent chauffeur. We know it's true. You just got to get your kids in that room. 
and then show up consistently, even when it's hard. Try to build and then try to build your own tools for what faith means to you and grow your own spiritual life. And like most of parenting, it means letting go of the need of for quick or even obvious results. Now, to be clear, the theology and messaging of my childhood church weren't always great. I did not get away without wounds to heal or shame to shake. And yet there is something in the relationships of care and trust that were offered over and over and again that, that shaped me in a profoundly, like a fundamental way. Relationships that taught me about a faithfulness that means most of all showing up for someone else and for a purpose greater than yourself. Relationships that made it clear that I mattered and that my life was meant for something more than simply getting good grades or eventually a good job, that I was here on this planet for a purpose and that I was loved no matter what. And that service and justice was the response that we make to this gift of being born. This is what Orange gets. And what we as religious liberals too often forget, that is when a faith community takes its decides to take its relationship with children and youth and families seriously and intentionally, it changes and it, it literally saves lives. And I don't just mean children and youth. One of my favorite workshops I attended at Orange this year was called Leveraging the Power of Grandparents. True confession, I kind of thought it was like a workshop on how to recruit older adults to be volunteers with your kids and families. But in true orange and mind-expanding fashion, that was not really the point. Instead, it began by asking us to consider this big question that is, if you were to die right now, what would you leave behind? And is that what you'd want it to be? Most especially, they urged us to consider how our faith and our values are being reflected in the next generation. They called out grandparents specifically in the framework because often these are questions that are on our minds naturally as we move into the third third of our lives. And they are questions that are especially embodied in that relationship between many grandparents and their grandchildren. But you need not be a grandparent or even a parent to consider if you would want the next generation to imitate your spiritual life or to wonder if anyone would, would really knows what really matters most to you and why or to hope that someone will carry this on after you are gone. When we search our hearts, my guess is we will all find a version of these questions there. So that when a faith community decides to take its relationship with children and youth and families seriously, it doesn't just save the kids or even just the parents. It also gives the other adults something most of us long for. It gives us legacy. And it gives us vision. That is a clarity about what our own faith is, what matters most of all to us that we believe would be worthy of passing on. Now, probably because the news about Roe came just a few days after I got back from Orange, I couldn't help but think of all those people that were there at the conference and how many of their churches had likely helped make this this moment, our shared reality. I don't know, really. I mean, one of my favorite things about Orange is that it refuses stereotypes. This, the, their work around racial justice and even complex conversations with youth around gender identity, especially in this year and this political climate where I found them inspiring and brave. And my hunch still is that a lot of the people, the family ministry leaders and youth pastors and all the volunteers that, that were there with me, that they would understand that work to end Roe as a matter of their faith. Just as others there would understand anti-gay legislation as a matter of their faith, and many others would, as a matter of their faith, insist on certain curriculum in schools. 
What I mean is nothing about this moment came from ambivalence. This moment that we find, we all find ourselves in is a product of intention and deliberation and in many ways, a product of that obsession with passing on faith to the next generation. Now, I know we often do not understand it this way, but we too, we too have imperatives of faith that we can be proudly obsessive about. And to be clear, I do not simply mean the values of liberal politics or even social progressivism. They are instead, for example, the theological understandings of each person's inherent worth and dignity. They are the practice, they include the practice of committing ourselves to a people and a tradition that invites us to believe not whatever we want, but what our conscience requires we must. Our faith includes the refusal of shame as a tool and the embrace of joy as a measure of freedom. Our faith is that deep sense of being connected to everyone and everything that exists now and that ever, ever has existed, ever will exist, and then acting from this deep sense of interconnectedness in everything we do. And our faith that we are called to pass on includes the knowledge that we are a part of a great tradition of people who have risked their lives on behalf of a greater truth and in service of a love that calls us and holds us all. Sometimes, I, when I think about my childhood Catholic community, I wonder what it would have been like to have that exact same experience except with the sort of theology and values that I've just described. That is to have, still have Marcy and Damaris and Denise and ministers named Mike and Alan, except that instead of Catholic school, what if I went to Unitarian Universalist school? And what if instead of learning to pray the rosary to end abortions, I learned comprehensive sex education? And what if instead of original sin, I was taught of our original blessing, that is our equal, all of us, inherent worth and dignity, and then how to live that out in real life? And what if instead of confession, I learned about real relationship repair and beginning again? And then multiply this, this one experience times all the kids that went through my church and my school over so many generations. Imagine what a different force we would all be in the world. And what, what sea change we would bring about if, if this faith, our faith, was at the heart of all of those relationships. In our community of faith. In in the Foothills Unitarian Church in Northern Colorado in 2022, we have more power than we realize. With intention, we can meet this moment, this moment in our personal lives, all of those personal things that each of us hold and carry. And we can meet this moment in our collective lives. We can give our children and ourselves a faith that is a vision of abundant life for all. May it be so, and amen. Hello, podcast listener. It's Elaine here. What a beautiful sermon Gretchen just shared with us, and what a beautiful vision. And I want to bring you back into the second half of our conversation, where we start thinking together about what, thinking in detail about what this kind of intergenerational community could look like at Foothills Unitarian Church, and what sort of barriers are there as well. So let's dive back in. You know, I was at our senior potluck last night, and I got to sit at a table with, you know, some of the older folks in our congregation. We had great conversation. Oh, by the way, just the ambiance was so warm. It felt so good to be together. And the piece that I took away from our conversation is how everybody mentioned 
how they love at Foothills the way that our children aren't just tolerated in worship, but how, especially right now in these pandemic times, the ways we're doing things, that it feels like the children are really welcome and integrated into the services and just how good that intergenerational piece is feeling. And I'd love to hear from you, Gretchen, just what's on your mind about, you know, kind of delving into the more specifics here. What could be possible in terms of um, making those intergenerational connections and passing, you know, transmitting our culture and our Unitarian Universalism? And I wonder what are some of the barriers you see too? Um, so I thought a lot about as I was writing the message that in some ways, like I was writing something that folks didn't need to be convinced of in theory, that the real challenge is how you make that practical. There's very rarely a time that I go to a meeting that is mostly older adults or a gathering mostly older adults where they don't say, I wish there were more young people here. Mm -hmm. I wish we had a chance for the young people to be involved. Where are young people? And, you know, again, in church, I was joke like we joke about what does young mean in church? It's like they mean like under 50. Um, so I, I think that the profound challenge and, and what will take a lot more imagination and um, commitment from our older adults in particular is that families need the church more than ever, need the thing that I was talking about in the sermon more than ever, and are the least engaged with church that they've ever been. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they don't know that they need it, but literally can't figure out how to integrate that sort of like even the idea of just showing up and putting your kid in the context feels impossible. Mm -hmm. And um, that like you can't you you can't be in relationship with kids you don't know, you know, that aren't here. And so I think it's um it requires some really out of the box thinking and um, and willingness to show up into where families are rather than the other way around. Um, I was meeting with uh, the leaders of our justice teams this past Saturday, and it's a group of about like 20 leading our various teams. And they're almost all, not all of them, but almost all of them are retirement age. And they all said, again, like we all want young people and families and kids to be around how to be engaged them. And their idea was to like have a table at the coffee hour and um, have them come up and sign up to come to their next meeting. And I, I had to break it to them that like the, literally that's not going to work. <laughs> um, first of all, they're very unlikely to come up if they do come up like the thing that they don't want to come to and make time for or that they just cannot take make time for is a meeting. Mm -hmm. um, so that instead to think, how would you get to know in real ways, like true, build true relationship with the families and kids who are in our church? And like, where, what does that mean? And where will you go? Where will you go to the playground? Will you go to the, like where, go, introduce yourself to families and get to know them first and understand what's going on in their lives, get to know their kids' names, get to know what their kids care about, build a relationship with them first. And out of that began to share, um, this came out in your, in the, that a workshop I talk about in the sermon, the leveraging the power of grandparents, that, um, that, that, that just being able to, to be around somebody who cares about you, loves you, sees you, knows what you care about, and somebody who also is um is invested in a in a, in a vision of the world a, a life of um that is based in their faith and in their spiritual life that is just living that mm -hmm. and so it's not like you need to provide your testimony to these families but just get to know them and then be the person that has a spiritual life mm -hmm. and has these commitments and i i think that is not how 
first of all, it's slower than having a table. It's less tangible than having a table, but it is about what a culture shift in terms of do we do we get to know and build relationships across where family like families and older adults and our whole church. Um and and you know, then we notice, oh, I haven't seen X family for four weeks or for eight weeks or something. And then you make it you you send a text, you make a call, you check in, maybe you bring them some muffins on a it, on a Sunday afternoon. You know, you just like like continue to care about them, regardless of if they're a part of your team or not. And it's it it's counterintuitive, especially for like justice type folks who are like do do do. You know, like I want to get this task done and check it off on my list. But that is the thing that turns it into a real community of faith rather than you know, like transactional relationships that are just there to get a job done. I love the idea of meeting parents and kids where they are right now. I think especially in this moment post-pandemic where I think still so many families are just getting back on their feet or still just getting oriented or maybe just edging into doing things without masks or in larger groups or, you know, I mean, I just feel it exhausted and bored and annoyed mentioning all of those things because it's gotten so old. Um, but it's so real. Um, I, I, can I ask you a question? So personally, I know like your family has been think. is it okay? Can I talk about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know your family has um, is kind of been wrestling with some of these questions around if and how to engage with church and foothills. And it it's different for us as as the ministers. That's a different sort of question. But I wonder, like, if if you, your family was to be in relationship, like if older adults were right now thinking, oh, Elaine's family, I'd love to be in relationship with them. Pretend you're not the minister. Yes, for a yes got it. What sorts of things would help that feel like a joy rather than a another thing to add to your, like what would bring you into that relationship? I think, first of all, what you mentioned with meeting at the playground or, or meeting in our backyard would be huge. Um, and to not have to find time to, to not have to feel like, first of all, also to just be there with my whole family, which sounds ridiculous, but I think one of the hardest things to make time for right now is just to be my polished adult self. Um, <clears throat> I think Gosh, how could I say yes to that? I would love to say yes to somebody who's interested in getting to know my kids. And I don't want to feel like my, you know, parenting is being scrutinized either. I think entering this with some sense of there's a person who's interested in seeing us and being with us as a whole family and who is interested in being with my kid in a way that is not about trying to figure out how I crawled through this pandemic on my knees, you know, and whether I did a good enough job of that, because that's all of my stuff that's coming up. You know, somebody asked me after church on Sunday, oh, so do you come with your kids? And I said, no. So I immediately felt embarrassed because I'm the minister and the kids haven't started coming yet. And then they asked a really reasonable question, why? And I thought about that for the rest of the day, how I answered that. I had such a time. I was so evasive and I was just like, oh, it's complicated. Um, but the truth is, is that during virtual school, we already were maxed out on screens in virtual church. And then came trying to not get COVID and just having a hard time being just figuring out a risk budget. Um, and then we've just gotten to this point where we're, it's, we're so entrenched in certain habits and so out of the church habit 
So I also think something that could help me say yes to being paired with a grandparent or something. This is all coming back to some kind of frame where I feel like there's not scrutiny around my parenting, but a desire to to know my kids that comes from a place of just curiosity. Like if the vibe is, I can't wait to discover who your kids are and to love them and be interested in them for exactly who they are. And I'm here to companion your family, whatever is up. Uh, So you can just be yourselves and I have time. I think those are the things I would want to hear. Good yeah, question. There, um, one of my friends who has, I think they're five-year-old twins. Mm-hmm. Um, she said she's just aching for people who will delight in her children. Yes. Yes. And who will find them just delightful, just enjoy them and who will admire them and see them for their beauty. And I thought that's such a simple, she said, like, they go to school, they go to preschool, and they're just in trouble the whole time. And then I come home, and I'm worried about their behavior. And then I, um, and then, and, and then their grandparents are still a little extra critical. I just want somebody who will delight in my kid. Yes, that's it. I feel like that's the perfect note to wrap up this uh, conversation on, Gretchen, is thinking about, you know, a conference where people delighted in each other in their shared experience. Yeah. And delighted in all of our shared humanity and how we do that at church as well. And just to think about what are the possibilities. Just imagine if we charged ourselves as a community with delighting in each other and delighting in our children. Yes. Yes. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I love this conversation. I'm so glad you made time to join in for this week's episode of the Foothills Deeper Pod. If you have a moment, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people discover the show when they're typing in keywords to Google and trying to find just the right something that might touch their lives in a meaningful way. And if there's anyone in your life who you think would resonate with the big questions we're wrestling with over here, please do send them a link. Spread the word. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad you joined us.